Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 161 for September 11th, 2008, Chrome. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure Visa. It's time for Security Now, the show that answers your question, the vital question, help! <laughs> <laughs> or the exclamation i suppose yeah, yeah, yeah it's not a question help uh what to do what, what to do with your gibsonian uh reflex response that's yes the gibsonian response which we encourage you to have that is something one of our viewers coined uh because anytime he sees something a little scary happen on this browser he says i had a gibsonian response little red lights flash sirens steve gibson's here from grc.com the security guru Hi, Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be with you. We are airing this on the seventh anniversary of 9-11. Oh, yeah. September 11th. A so, very grave, okay. serious anniversary. Seven right. years, though, have already gone. We're getting old. You know, 9-11 is one of those things, though, like uh, the Kennedy assassination. We're old yeah. remember that, where you will always know where you were when you heard it. Yep. yep. In fact, I got a... I got a call from the FBI that morning and was asked to help out with some things oh, they really? needed. Oh, how and interesting. The guy, my, my FBI guy called me and says, you know what happened? I said, oh, yeah. You know, I had the TV turned on. I think several people had called before saying, my wow. God, turn on the television. So it's like, wow, yeah, big deal. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly something to commemorate. And, um, and uh, it, changed, it changed the world forever. It certainly changed Americans' lives forever. Yep. Um, also, uh, the day after the Large Hadron Collider did not destroy the Earth. That's a good thing. <laughs> assuming that our listeners, we're recording this on Wednesday. If you're when hearing the this. <laughs> turned on. Now, yes, assuming that this podcast is ever actually heard by any humans. <laughs> no, because they're not yet colliding. They're just testing. They're just running that's, around the track right now. So. That's true. No danger yes, of course, yet. You know, the 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 sky is falling. People are saying that you know it's going to create a black hole that's going to suck the whole Earth into it. And but the good news is that small black holes evaporate quickly, <laughs> and, and they they may actually be like zipping around. You know, black holes can get caught by gravitational bodies. So we might we might have a few already inside the the planet, just sort of zooming around our center of gravity, and you know nobody would really know it. It's not a big problem. They asked Stephen Hawking. He said, oh, no, it's not a problem. But, but uh, see, I thought a black hole uh, accretes uh, very rapidly all the stuff around it because of its, its intense gravitational field. Well, it does, except that there is also evaporation. And I used to know. I mean, I remember once I understood the physics of that, but right. it's like long since gone. But, right. Fascinating you know, stuff. But I, I think. believe Stephen, because after all, he's the he person to know. That, that Hawking radiation was named after. But, you know, I love it when they do big science like this. It's arguably the largest scientific experiment ever created by humans. 
um, just exciting. Oh you know? God! And Leo, when you a Scientific American earlier this year or late last year, it might have been had this fantastic spread to, that, like, with huge color photos of the various, um, the various targeting systems, like you know the 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 end point where all the these high energy uh, photons end up um, going. And I mean, it is it is it makes it, it looks like you know like a real starship. I mean, it's like yeah. it's, it's it looks like. You know, like the literally the engine room of a big enterprise sort of, <laughs> so you know, cool. warp drives. That's it's just so phenomenal. Cool. And then in, in, in the photo, they'll refer to the picture, you know, like like the guy on the scaffold. And you go, what? And then you look. And if you like zoom way in with your eye, you see this little person standing, you know, like adjusting something in this massive thing surrounding them. It's just, ooh, I mean, it just gives me goosebumps. It's like it is like it is as close to science fiction as science fact has come so far. It's just uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting when we do stuff like that. I'm just it's just makes you proud to be alive in an amazing should, era. It should be able to tell us. I mean, the whole point of this is by by creating much higher energy collisions of particles, it will help to confirm and uh, existing theories and also raise questions that then the theoreticians will work on solving. So, I mean, it's basically it's all about allowing us to get a better sense for what it is that our fabric of reality is built from. How you know how does it really work? Is it strings or yeah. or loops it's or so exciting? You know, we have we have a, a physicist who is a, 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 a regular follower of uh, our broadcasts. She's a professor at the University of Toronto of uh, Physics, uh, Professor Pete. She's going to join us on the radio show on a Sunday to talk about well, what it means and so forth, and what what the Higgs boson is. And <laughs> will, will, will she be on for the whole three hours? Oh no no no! I, I don't think. Well, who knows if there's enough? She's going to start at the beginning. Uh, we'll start at eleven thirty, so it's possible we okay. could keep her for as long as people want to talk about it. I think I this is listen. the kind of thing it's important to talk about. You know, this is this is tech. It is serious tech. Yeah, yeah. It's mega tech. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mega tech. We're going to talk about the newest browser in the browser wars. A big shot from Google Chrome, and it's I presume security angle, right? Well, yes. Um, you know, that's of course that's the angle of our whole show, and you know that we discussed it for the first time. Last week, because it had been announced the day before we were recording, we record on Wednesdays for publication on Thursday, and Chrome was, was released on, the, on Tuesday of last week. And, you know, you and I immediately backed away from it due to the problems with the EULA, the end, you know, EULA, right. the End User License Agreement, which was ridiculous. And the good news is so many people raised such a fuss that Google, with shocking speed, Fixed it. They said. I mean, they said. Whoops. They said. Our bad. We didn't mean to. We that was cut and paste. It. No, I'm not sure if I believe that. But but they backed off very quickly. Yeah. And I don't think I believe it, Leo. I mean, they this have thing is, lawyers by the dozens. They could rewrite. And it. this thing is two years in yeah. the making. Yeah. The browser is. Um, I, I have a lot to say about it, and none of it good. Well, not much of it good. I'm very disappointed. Okay. I'm, huh. I'm, you know, I'll tell you why. Good. Um, when we I can't get, wait. When we get into, yeah. Speaking of security, of course, this show brought to you by the good folks at Astaro. They make the incredible Astaro security gateway. They've been a sponsor of this show since day one, and uh, practically, I, not day one exactly, but certainly in our first year, they joined us. And it's because they saw a mutual uh, interest 
We know that you're listening because you're interested in security. And if you're in charge of security in an enterprise, a small business, a big business, a medium business, then you know you're looking at hardware devices to protect your, 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 the employees, to protect the users. The Astaro Security Gateway is the premier UTM, Unified Threat Management device out there. It is just the best. Best in class in both open source and commercial, uh, best of breed software. You get anti-spam, anti-phishing, of course. You get three antiviruses, two for email, one for the web. Web antivirus filtering is very important nowadays. This is That's critical. You also get transparent encryption using OpenPGP or SMIME. That means your users can send signed or encrypted email without even their, you know, knowing it, and vice versa, protecting your most sensitive business communications. You get complete control over what they do on the web, content filtering, instant message filtering, peer-to-peer filtering. Um, and, of course, you get what you'd expect in a UTM. You get a very, very high-quality firewall. You get intrusion protection. Oh, there's also VPN via SSL. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It scales using clustering. As many as 10 ASGs can be uh, uh, clustered using their active-active clustering technology, which means no additional load balancing necessary. It just goes on and on. But I tell you, the best thing to do would be to call Astaro and set up a demo, free demo in your business. Call 877-427-8276. That's 877, the number 4, Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O. You can visit them online at astaro.com. If you're a non-commercial user, they support the uh, the open community and they offer a free version, including a subscription to all the Astaro up-to-date uh, features. Absolutely free. Just go to astaro.com slash security now. You can even download a VMware appliance for free. Uh, that'll do it. It's, just, it's a great way to actually learn about uh, the gateway and how it all works. A-S-T-A-R-O.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. So, Steve, uh, before we get into Chrome, which I'm very yep. excited about, any updates? I, You know, it's funny. I booted up. I've been gone uh, for a day, <sighs> and I booted up, and all my Windows machines said, we've got updates, we've got updates. So it must be a patch Tuesday. It was, a, yes. Um, yesterday must was a patch been. Tuesday, yeah. and it was an important one. In fact, uh, well, there were four major Windows components that all had patches, uh, Windows Office, Media Player, and Media Encoder. Um, the office vulnerabilities were significant oh. because there was a, a new component that was added in Windows XP. Uh, all versions of Windows from the very first version one had something called GDI, the graphics device interface. Mm-hmm. GDI, along with user and kernel, are, are like the three main pillars of Windows. And, and of course, the whole point of Windows is that it's a it's a graphic a graphical environment for does every, for, all all calls all graphics calls go through GDI? Yes, okay. yes. GDI is is that well? Yes, all graphics calls do. There are non graphics calls, you know, like memory allocation and yeah, things yeah, that, yeah. that don't involve graphics. But yeah, it is. It's where all the graphics system is located. And Microsoft added something called GDI Plus, sort of an additional next chunk of it's another DLL library of subroutines. Well, there were. There were four, I'm sorry, five vulnerabilities in GDI plus, and, and these are the, these, and, and the reason these are of concern is that these are image rendering vulnerabilities, and images, of course, are what web pages display. So people who understand what the vulnerabilities are, it's, it's one of those where you know email that, that is running in the IE viewer. Um, uh, so you know, displaying email that, that displays an image, or or using Outlook with the IE viewer, or 
um, or you know going to a website with with IE or or even non IE any browser that is going to be rendering those images will will typically be using this GDI library. So anyway, very important as always. It's like this never not important uh, for people to make sure that they've got these most recent patches for Windows. Yeah. This being you know we're just having passed another second Tuesday of the month. Um, also. The news about Wells Fargo's login continues. <laughs> Just to update to, you, this was a, an email we got two two episodes ago. Yep, from somebody saying, "Hey, that's weird. It truncates my uh, password. It doesn't use any more. Is it eight characters it uses?" And then, well, yeah, his his, his the, the first report we heard was that extra characters were ignored. Yeah. Now I'm not sure if it no one has like done an experiment or reported it that, that says, "Look, this is how many it uses." Uh, we do know that you can put a superfluous characters on the end <laughs> right. that are completely wrong, just random, and you still get to log in. Right. Then, then the the second report we heard was that not only is the password is the the tail of the password um, superfluous; it doesn't matter. But the password is non-case sensitive, which dramatically reduces the security. Because, but you know, in the name of making sure users are able to log on. The problem is when you do that, you're helping the bad guys to log on as well. Anyway, the uh, I got another report from someone who, after hearing these two, decided, okay, I'm going to play with this myself. So he reports that not only is the password not case-sensitive, neither is the username. Oh, man, it's getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> so none of this is case-sensitive. And, you know... That's just that would amazing. have had to have been deliberate on on the part of the programmers because yeah. you you need to to do you would need to deliberately remove the case before you stored it. You strip it out. And yeah. Yes. You you would like make everything lowercase or 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 uppercase one way or the other, um, and then you'd have to make you'd have to do the same conversion every time you did a comparison. So it's it's not a natural thing for something to be not case sensitive it is an unnatural thing i mean you you'd go to some effort in order to make that happen so anyway that little and you would do you would do that because you would like the users to not have to you know to make it easier as usual the trade-off between security and convenience so if they enter it with a capital l for leo or a lowercase l it doesn't matter i know it doesn't make sense for the password but i guess you probably have some, you know. I'm okay. I'm going to be stereotype here. And it's not but, like you're you're logging into Twit or Twitter or but something. This is I mean, your bank account. Your, exactly. But this they're is worried that some unsophisticated user will type, you know, the password with uppercase and lowercase, not realizing it makes any difference. So they just make it easier. They don't want the support calls. And we don't know what the history is. It may well be that the programmers originally implemented it in a in a fully case sensitive fashion, and they got so many redundant calls right. saying, "Hey, I can't log in." Hey, that, ma- in. that management said, "Okay, we got to make this easier. This is ridiculous. Let's you know, ev- people are not rem- you know remembering the case of their right. password, and so they just you know, presumably uh, removed it." Uh, I got a kick out of something that happened. Well, a kick only because I'm not a user of Trend Micro's AV. Last week, Trend Micro, the the update early last week, um, misidentified um, a collection of Windows XP and Vista core OS files, <laughs> quarantined them and removed oh, them. Oh, which means it broke the system. 
It hosed people. There are still people who have lost XP who oh. cannot get back to XP. Even oh. going into safe mode doesn't help you because it's some of the, some core files that are necessary for safe mode. It, and it's not the first time this has happened with Trend. It also did happen to Symantec a few years ago. So, I mean, this is sort of the dark side of the heuristic pattern matching is and you've got to wonder too how they missed this. I mean, yeah. how, you know, did they run this on their own machines? And or somehow was it, you know, maybe a foreign language version matched or and 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 the language they were testing on didn't or, or something. But, you know, it's like really bad when your AV, you know, it's it's like an autoimmune disease, I guess. Right. I mean, your, your AV yeah. decides you're evil and, you know, quarantines. Well, that's an you know, the, description. The OS from yourself. It is like an autoimmune, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's where your immune system goes after yourself instead of. Yeah. Yeah. So. Not good. And I did want to mention also, I got uh, news from my friends at Golden Bow, who are the publishers of Vopt, which is one of my two favorite defraggers. Uh, Vopt, I really like, which has always been a major version 8. I think it's been an 8.1 for a while. They released version 9, which has some Vista enhancements. It's been it's redesigned and it's very nice. So that and Perfect Disk are my two favorite optimizers. They're enough different that I I like to use them both. Sort of for Vopt is very fast and sort of does a does does a, a a nice quick very graphical. You can really see what's going on. Defrag V and Perfect Disk is able to defrag the files that are in use. That is the 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 the, the page table hibernation file. Um, directories, basically the system things that normal defragging won't do, you're able to say defrag at boot, and then when you restart the machine, it, it, it jumps in before Windows gets going and defragments all of those core things that don't tend to fragment by themselves, so you don't have to do it very often, but it's just nice to have something that'll like you know set that up once for you when you're, when you're setting up a new machine. So I'll, I'll tell you how old that is. I remember Jerry Pornell recommending vopt that's where i first heard about it in his users column chaos manor in the in bite magazine it's probably 15 years ago They've yeah been a long time yep yeah, there are there are a good, golden good bow has been around a long time they're a, a good company nice technology and i was just there there hadn't been much action or motion with vopt for a long time so i was sort of wondering well i guess it's sort of not going to be changing but I got the news last week that they had gone to version 9, and so I just wanted to point that out to people because I've mentioned it before. I know that there are listeners of Security Now who are, have adopted Vopt, and so I wanted to make sure they knew there was a new one. Yeah, yeah that's a good... And then I, I promised last week that I would I would share a short little a little SpinWrite blurb with our listeners about um, it about SpinWrite saving 200 kittens. Uh <laughs> It turns out that was I was a that's a little misquote. The, well, but the, well, but not much. The, the the subject line of this email is Spinrite saved two hundred hungry cats, and so the author Marius says, "Hi Steve, hi Leo. I want to give some feedback for the fabulous Spinrite. I'm working in an animal shelter. We have got a special database to control the feeding and to control food orders automatically." During the weekend, our computer broke, broke down, and we were unable to determine whether there had already been food orders for all the animals. Because of the fact that we're very low on money these days, a double order was impossible. After I asked some technically skilled guys, 
my friend Paul told me that there's Spinrite. The order was no problem because your site is designed very well. After I purchased Spinrite and got it instantly, I was able to recover all the data on the computer, and I saw that we had not placed the food order. I was able to complete everything, then purchased a new hard drive as a precaution. 200 hungry cats and dogs are thanking you, Steve and Leo, and so do I. Spinrite saved these animals. Uh, okay. <laughs> Save these animals, and I'm very happy to announce that I'll try to listen to security now from now on, too, but I'm not a technical guy. Thanks for this brilliant program in the name of the hungry animals, yours, Marius. The hungry so, animals say, thank you, animals. Steve. Wow. <laughs> hungry animals. Hungry animals. Thank us. Been right. That's yes. great. That's great. Hey, before we go a little farther, and we're, I think we're about to talk about Chrome, I do want to uh, encourage... Yep. Everybody to remember the next time they go shopping when you're talking about security, it's not it's not just what you use to protect yourself. It's what you do to protect yourself. You want to use that Visa card. You know, I'm talking about Visa because they're a sponsor of the show. And we really agree that Visa is the way to shop online with every purchase. They do all these amazing things to protect you, to secure what you're doing, to make sure that there's no fraud going on and to catch it and resolve it if there is. That's why you might get that every once in a while, that special call from Visa that says, did you really do this? And, you know, it's a great feeling. You can say, yeah, I did, or no, I didn't. And then all they say is, don't worry, we got it. We got it under control. Zero liability. That's the key. So when you go shopping online or off, make sure you take along your Visa card. That's all you have to remember. Safe, secure Visa. That's peace of mind. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Chrome is a good name. And I was thinking about... uh, about the choice of names. You know where, where, where the name comes from, right? No. Um, Chrome is the jargon which is used by browser designers to refer to all of the UI outside of the page. Oh, interesting. So they refer to that as the Chrome right. on the browser. That makes sense. You know, and, and, like the, and, and, like and by the, the way, this is a very Chrome-free browser. So it's kind of ironic. It is. It's, a minimal, it's a minimal Chrome. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and that's that's one of the things I like about it. You know, we were talking just the other day that that I like small devices. I've got this little OQO, which is a right. is a is a cute little handheld, you know, ultra mobile Windows machine. The screen is eight hundred by four eighty, so I don't have lots of screen pixels to waste on superfluous UI. And so, you know, so running full screen in, in the browser and a browser that isn't taking up a lot of the screen is really nice. The, where, where we you know we talked about the EULA, and then I was I was aware a couple of days later that Google had fixed the EULA. It's like okay, well that's good, and you know, and I had I had mentioned to you that in, in the, prior to the podcast starting, I was in the process of installing Chrome in a VM, um, in in a in a VMware virtual machine just to give it a place to live, so I could watch it and not have to install it on my main system and then, and then remove it with all of the you know, the wear and tear that creates. Well, but I didn't really take any action until that is, you know, further action with, with Chrome and with the EULA being the way it was, that of course put me off of it completely though they have fixed that. But I happened to go to one of my pages, which is not yet public. It's the whole cookie region that I've been working on, which I have suspended work on while I'm working now on this very comprehensive DNS profiling facility which i expect to be announcing in two weeks and and i saw anyway i went to one of my cookie pages and this is a page which is 
basically advocating for third-party cookies being disabled by default. Mm -hmm. The only browser that does that in the entire industry, and this is inclusive of Chrome now, is Safari. Mm -hmm. Safari has cookies disabled by default. And and on this page, I, I show the of all the visitors who come to GRC, how many people have cookies enabled. And it's a huge number. It's I mean, a huge percentage, just like 80-some percent, I think. And then I show the power of default settings by showing what Safari's setting is. And it's always been down in the low, like just a little over 10%. But but when I happen to go to that page, oh, and this is all real-time statistics that are that are that update continuously every Sunday night. The prior week's summary is is made current so that I'm able to see changes over time and not just you know accru- accrue forever. So I'm able to see like you know I'm, we're always looking at what the last week's stats are. Well, suddenly it was fifty. The the Safari was showing as fifty four point something percent. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, that can't be. Nothing has changed in Safari. But and then I immediately clicked on what it was because I remembered that Chrome was based on WebKit, which is the same open source HTML rendering system that Safari is based on. So my hunch was that that my cookie tracking system was misrecognizing new Chrome users as Safari users. Oh, interesting, huh? And that since Chrome had third-party cookies enabled by default, I was suddenly believing that Safari had gone bad. Right. And, but, but the fact that the number was so big shocked me. It's like, wait a minute, you know, are people are really using Chrome? And so then I went over to my, to my demographics stats page, which is much more comprehensive, and sure enough, suddenly a big I have a pie chart there that shows the various percentages of brow, of browsers of visitors coming to GRC and everyone all of our listeners will be, know about this as soon as I get these pages finished. I don't want to talk about it too much. I mean I don't want to go into into detail about all the other things that are there because they're not complete. We end up with people saying, "Hey, wait a minute, I clicked this link and it says there's, you know, I got a 404." It's like, "Yes, that's just a placeholder for me." So, anyway, the point is that that I was quite surprised by the rate of Chrome adoption. And I thought, okay, if that's the case, then we need to talk about it because there are some things interesting about Chrome, lots of interesting and intriguing good design decisions from a, or potentially good from a security standpoint, but some things that are also very annoying to me. So I did some research, and it turns out that in the first 24 hours of Chrome's release, it hit 1% internet penetration. That is 1% of, of internet users were giving Chrome a try. And that peaked about three days later at 1.57% in one stat that I saw. So, you know, I mean, obviously it didn't take over, but it did, you know, there were a lot of people using it and apparently going to GRC to see, you know, what yeah. we thought of Chrome. Right. Um, to give people some sense of, of the way the demographics are breaking down right now, IE is holding about 70, 70 71%. <laughs> you, just, you just sold a copy of Spin right I hear. <laughs> I thought I muted that. <laughs> no, I, I always, like it. You should never mute that. 
Oh, really? Okay, oh, I well. love it. That Yabba Dabba Doo is a little... Steve has all these sounds that he normally mutes in the background. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that means... Well, that's that's a license to us. Been right, yeah? That's a that's someone's credit card cleared. Because <laughs> I have I have <laughs> as, as, as they're moving as they're moving through the the e commerce pages, you know, where, where where you fill out the form and right. then you submit that and you verify before you before you commit. I have like a a cash register sound, ching 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 ching, <laughs> and then when when the actual credit card transaction occurs. I have this Fred Flintstone. It's not merely celebratory. You probably also can use it diagnostically because if you hear like a ching ching chings, but you don't hear a yabba dabba do, if you start hearing little issues like that, that probably has. Oh, absolutely. I yes. I mean, it does. There is when I've got there are other sounds that 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 it makes. Basically, I set up a a custom UDP client and server, Mm. and every two seconds, my client pings a custom server at GRC's facility at level three wow. to, re- to request an update on all kinds of stats. So a whole stats package comes back that allows me to monitor incoming and outgoing bandwidth and, you know, other things that are happening, including, you know, the, the status of our e-commerce right. system. So anyway, you, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I could, <laughs> Fred distracted me and I'm easily distracted. Let's get back to Chrome. I'm actually okay. going to load my statistics, uh, statistics pages because, uh, I use Google Analytics on a number of pages. You know, we get much more a much more geeky audience, so our Chrome adoption rate is going to be much higher than the average, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. Um, IE currently has about 71% market share. Firefox is at 20. This is not your server. This is global. No, this is global. Yeah. The, 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 these are stats people It's reversed who on my server. It's exactly the opposite. Well, and actually at GRC... It's very much similar to that. Yeah. Uh, Firefox is is about half, mm. and I think it slightly edges out IE. We still get a lot of IE, but uh, but a, you know a really a disproportionate share compared to the internet in general, which is not surprising because Firefox users, I mean you know NoScript is super popular, yeah, yeah. which is the which is what I keep preaching is that you know JavaScript is not safe. And so, yes, it's useful, but it's, you know, it's like radio. It's bad. And so, you know, you have to have it sometimes, but you don't have to have it all the time. You also, it, you also get a, um, probably a lot of business users buying a Spinrite and, or going to a Shields Up. And that may skew you a little bit more towards IE than, for instance, Twit. Oh, that's a good point, too. Yeah. yeah, I don't really know the demographic of the Shields Up users. But, but so IE at 71, Firefox at 20. Safari, Apple's browser, and this combined Windows and Mac is at like somewhere between 6.1 and 6.3, depending on who you ask. And Opera, surprisingly, is, is as low as 0.75. You want to hear my numbers? Yeah. For twit.tv. And again, a geeky audience, right? So it's going to be a little different. Firefox, 60%. IE, 20%. Safari, wow. 14%. Mac, of course. Yep. Yeah. Chrome two point four one percent. Wow! And uh, and this is in the last. Uh, looks like the last uh, since August tenth, so the last month, thirty days. So if I actually if I go if I go since Chrome went out, came out, let me just look at the week. It's going to be much higher Chrome percentage, and then Opera two point two seven percent. So it's interesting the disparity. Really, I just I'm curious. Let me just look at the the last. Say when did Chrome come out? The second, right? Yes, uh, Tuesday before last. All right, let me let me go with a second through the tenth. And see what Chrome is. Uh, Chrome Chrome has fallen, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's eight eight point eight percent in the last week. 
for me. Wow. And you know, wow. and you know who it took uh, market share from? Firefox. Firefox down 5%, i.e. only down about a point and a half. Well, now that actually speaks to some of the points that I'm going to be raising because I, I've, well, okay, and I want to just finish that net-wide, Chrome peaked at 1.57 internet-wide and had then began to drop and is now down to, at last note, 0.9%. So there were a lot of people who gave it a test drive, mm-hmm. who thought, oh, I want to see what Google sure. has done. Sure. And and this is my my main complaint is that, you know, as the famous old expression is, you, o- you, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Right. And, and I sort of wonder who Chrome is targeted at because it was clear to me that, that it would be Firefox users right. who were – you know that that is to say, those who are were first of all willing to move from IE. You know, there's been a lot of conversation over the week about about Web 2.0 and AJAX application handling because one of the Chrome's main features is that it, you know they say that it has an extremely strong, very fast, brand new JavaScript engine, their own JavaScript engine V8, mm-hmm. um, made by some guys, I think a, a team in Denmark, as I recall, and and sure enough, if you benchmark their JavaScript versus others, um, theirs wins. You know, uh, uh, there are JavaScript benchmarking suites and sites, um, and and the, and Chrome does win. However, in overall page loading performance, it is not speedier, for example, than Firefox um, or Opera. So, so that's a problem. Now, one reason is one of the benefits of Chrome is that. They are launching, and, I, and I've checked a lot of this out now, they really are launching an entirely separate process, a Windows mm-hmm. process for every page. So there is process creation overhead um, with creating a new page. It's not bad, but it, it, it's two things. It, it does take some time, and it does take some memory. At the moment, Chrome is a bigger memory hog even than IE8, really? which is now in beta 2, and IE8 has been criticized as being a memory hog. There, there was a, one reviewer who opened a, a standard 10-page set of, of tabs, and whereas IE8 consumed, are you seeing down, Leo? Yeah. 324 megabytes <laughs> to open those. Chrome was a little more than that. Yeah, but everybody has several gigs. I mean, come on, that's not. Well, uh, actually, and I, and I would I, point out that when you're when you're testing beta software, frequently there's code, as you know, left in beta software that takes more memory. Beta software is not tuned for memory usage yet or speed. Well, okay, maybe they well, um, they, they might even I, have I, assemble tables in there and stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that could be still in there. Uh, it's not in there. Oh, okay. Um, all right. I looked. Um, <laughs> I think that. What we are going to have to accept is that we're moving to a next generation of browser. Well, that's right. I th- that's right. I think that I think that IE8 and and Chrome are are both aiming. I mean, certainly this is where Microsoft's direction is, and we know this is where Google's direction is. They are aiming at at the browser becoming the OS. They're an app. Well, they're an application platform at least. I don't know if. They, I don't think you'll be del- deleting files and moving files via Chrome, but it's an application platform for sure. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we if someone does some wacky, you know, uh, plug in for file 
Browser. <laughs> okay, but 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 in any event, what yeah. I mean is I don't I don't mean the OS in that sense. I mean as as where you run applications yeah, right now. Application we run, platform, we, right, right. Right now we run applications on top of the OS, and clearly the Microsoft and Google are both aiming toward this whole yes. you know always connected. We we rent your applications for you, or, you know, to you mm-hmm. and you're going to be running them in the browser. Mm-hmm. So a strong JavaScript interpreter, and in fact, um, Chrome apparently goes further. They do some sort of bytecode um, compilation. They say they're compiling into real machine language. So it's probably, I mean, there, there's been a lot of work done in virtual machine architectures over, over the years. And there are, there are systems where they will, they will compile on the fly, the first time they run across bytecode, they compile it in in a, in a just-in-time fashion right. into real machine language, and then next loop through, next time they execute it, it's much faster. You still have an intermediate language translation overhead and an and intermediate language ex- sort of expression overhead as opposed to something where a, a compiler is able to you know crank on it for some length of time to produce natively optimized code so it's never going to be as fast um but it, it is acceptably fast and we have machines getting much faster and to your point about about how much memory these systems have today i mean you're certainly right leo um um so that it so so what if it takes a third of a gig i will say that i completely crashed chrome running it in a 256 meg virtual machine. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so, so but I think that that's the way that's the trend of all of all software and certainly all application platforms and OSs, you know, you assume more memory space. However, it I mean crashed. I mean it didn't that's hang. Not good. It yeah. just disappeared off the screen yeah. and then it would not restart. Now, I'm wondering how much how much RAM does Word take up or Excel take up when you're running a native application? It takes up a lot of memory too. I don't think they take up not 300 megs. 300 megs is a huge amount of memory. <laughs> You're biased because because Spinrite runs in like 20k. So you, <laughs> I'm I'm just saying that that it that it is going to have a problem right. on lean machines. There are there are 500 meg machines that people are using today, where because once upon a time half a gig was a lot of memory. Well, and I also and, want to point out, I'm looking in the chat room, there are people who have 20 tabs, there's a guy who says, I usually have 20 tabs open, 12 tabs times three rows, 15 to 25 tabs. There are people whose workflow has a lot of processes running in their browser. Okay, so now, the reason that Google has done this is twofold. Um, they they recognize that if, if a browser is going to be an enterprise-ready tool, mm-hmm. that is, if literally, if if you would be using it as your word processor, then you can't be 15 pages into creating a document and have it and have some other tab where th- that you briefly switched over to to do something hang your whole browser because you know you've got 15 pages of work in one of these in one of these tabs. So there and frankly, when this thing just disappeared from my screen yesterday, I wasn't very impressed with its its yeah. you know collision handling uh capabilities but you know again it is beta we recognize it's beta so the idea though is by by launching separate processes they they keep them independent and google's 
focus from the beginning has been that these things, that individual processes run in separate tabs so that if one dies, it's just like an app dying in Windows. An application dies, and of course that happens or locks up and, and you know, happens from time to time, especially if they're poorly written. That you, you just, you know, you close it or kill it using Task Manager if you have to. Uh, but inherently, you've got, you've got your other applications are unaffected. Similarly, the other tabs in Chrome would be unaffected. So there's that. Also, Google makes the point that that there is inherent memory fragmentation. It's known as heap fragmentation in, within the context of a process. So within a single process, one of the things that happens is there's all kinds of memory continually being allocated and deallocated. When you, as you surf around and a page is, is loaded, the page contains all kinds of GIF in and PNG and Flash and all kinds of other images. Well, those all acquire memory from the process within that process's space while you're looking at the page. You then go to another page, and those chunks are freed. Well, all these chunks are different sizes. And so what happens is the operating system searches for a, a, a free space large enough to fulfill a, a requirement, and it sticks something in there. Then for example, it might say that something else comes along that's smaller. Well, so it fits it into a smaller space. Then something else is re- is removed. It is exactly analogous to fragmentation of a hard drive. When you think about it, the, the reason hard drives fragment is that new files are added, mm-hmm. file sizes change, files are deleted, file of uh, an old version is turned into a dot save, and a new version is created. So there's constant churn on the hard drive and all users are familiar with the way their hard drive looks when they view it in a good defragger you know it's just all chewed up it's all fragmented well the same thing happens to memory what happens over time is and in fact heavy users of firefox are familiar with this phenomenon because it's something that has afflicted firefox um, to somewhat de- greater degree for whatever reason just architecturally than than ie is firefox will start getting really slow and you'll have to literally shut it down and restart it in order to like get it going at normal speed again, and that's due to fragmentation. Now, so modern operating systems, uh, you know, memory managers handle that. They they make sure you don't get fragmentation. Why is it these browsers can't do that? Well, modern operating systems actually don't. They don't. Um, well, no. This the the containment of this is per process, and so it's the it's the process. That has the that has the fragmentation. So the so, application or or the page has to do, has to handle that, or the JavaScript well, or something. What 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 the the advantage of this per process model in Chrome? And I have to I should mention that IE has gone to the same thing. IE eight is also a process per page for many of the same oh, reasons. Interesting. But, huh? So 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 we have that in IE eight without having to go to Chrome for it. The point is that. That by 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 having individual pages be processes, you get the robustness of them not crashing each other. Hopefully, unless the whole browser crashes, as mine did yesterday. Um, but you also it also means that when you leave a tab or close a tab, that process, even though there might have been fragmentation within it, 
all of the memory is released because, the, all, for example, uh, the, the heap structure is a per-process heap. So it's per-process allocation that this is being done. It, it, essentially, it means that, that the fragmentation that you will have is, is per-tab rather than per-browser. And so just closing a tab, which is becoming a problem, if you happen to be like surfing in one tab all day long, which it sounds like most people aren't doing, they're jumping around between tabs and tabs have, you know, a life of some length of time, much less than the time they're using the browser. So, um, so then so an, an operating system is kind of at the mercy of the application that's running. If the application have memory leaks or doesn't release memory properly, then they can't help the defragmentation, the, to the fragmentation. Correct. And in fact, there is this notion in, in modern um, high-level languages like um, JavaScript. Garbage there is something, yeah. yeah, yeah. just going to say, the, the, the garbage collector, um, again, Google designed it so that they have a more, they're, they're able to have a more aggressive garbage collector in their JavaScript engine than other JavaScripts are able to because theirs is able to track the usage of, of, of pointers which point to these these temporary objects um, with a finer degree of, of precision, essentially, than other JavaScript engines. Right. And, f and the last benefit is security. By, by running pages in their own process, you get the, the, the benefit that the OS already brings to inter-process isolation. Now, that's sort of an oxymoron, as we know, because inter-process isolation could be and should be arguably much better under Windows than it currently is. There is not sufficient inter-process isolation. And Google makes a point of, of talking about how add-ons to Chrome can weaken the inter-process, or the, in this case, the inter-tab uh, the, the isolation and also the isolation of the tab with the OS. Google is deliberately working to sandbox the operation of the pages running in the browser. They have a model where you're either the you're either user or sandbox and it it's we could think of it a little bit like NAT routers. We know how for example the bad the big bad internet is outside of our NAT router and we don't allow unsolicited traffic into our protected local network. Well, similarly, the, the model that Google has adopted is sort of like a NAT wrapped around individual browser pages hmm. where, where the, the, the page is unable to make an unsolicited access, an unsolicited request outside of itself. It's only... The, the privileged OS on the outside, the user space, that is able to communicate inward, and the app is only able to respond to external, re to external requests. It's, it's not able to initiate any communication itself. So, you know, that's, to the degree that that succeeds, you know, that's, that's a nice model. My, my problem with the browser is that it is, well, to say it is feature lean is an understatement. <laughs> and, and this is where I wonder who they're trying to sell this to. I, I, mean, I don't mean sell literally because it's free, but, but we know that Firefox users 
love the features of Firefox, which IE lacks. And one of the, and, you know, and IE is slow in adopting these things, like oh gee, tabs, for example. Um, but also simple security features. For example, okay, get this: Chrome, like all contemporary browsers, offers to save your passwords, and and you can turn that off, but it's on by default. The problem is, it will also show your passwords, hmm. but but. There is no provision for a password to protect the passwords, meaning that anyone can sit down at your Chrome browser, you, I mean, you know, other than you, your kids, a coworker, anyone, and look at all of your passwords, and which displays all of your usernames and passwords in the clear and write them down. There is no provision for protecting that. Mm. As for example, in in Firefox, you're able to create an Opera to create a master password, right. which which will protect access to those. You know, I, it's funny. I noticed that my uh, what, what do you call it? The the Gibson alarm went off. <laughs> the the a, a Gibsonian, Gibsonian response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that it was it was saving my passwords, but it it didn't ask me for a password to protect it. And I was and, wondering how they store it. So they store it in the clear. Well, it's it's you you click a button to say show passwords. I guess and they have it, to. If you don't give a password, it's, how else are they going to do it? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so okay. So there's that. Um, again, and absolutely no scripting management of any kind. You can't turn it off. I mean, even yeah. IE lets you turn it off. Even I mean, and Firefox and Opera. Well, remember I mean, though, this browser is designed for JavaScript. I mean. I, 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 you know, I think one of the ways I use it, I don't use it as a day-to-day browser. What I've done is I've sep- I've taken like Gmail and made that be a separate application running in Chrome on my desktop. Yep. That, yep. But again, that's not safe if it's saving the Gmail password, but at least, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of how I'm using it. I'm, I'm not using it to browse randomly. And I'm, I okay, suspect that's so, the intent, right? So I recognize that they wrote Chrome to have an application right, for right. running JavaScript. Right. But, but again... Who is their customer? Because because it is a huge benefit for people running Firefox. And as I said, even IE, uh, you're able to do like per site handling in IE and in Firefox and in Opera. There is zero per site features in Chrome. There is no, nowhere in there can you say, I want to whitelist a site or blacklist a site. There, there's no provision for that kind of yeah. granularity, and the cookie handling could not be weaker in terms right. of privacy. Now we know that you know they bought DoubleClick, the king of third-party <laughs> cookies, so so that's a bit of a concern. You've got you've got three settings for cookies, which is wide open mm-hmm. or or completely closed, which we know is just impractical. You just can't do anything with the net that way, but. No whitelisting. You can't say closed except for right. these sites. I mean, again, even IE, the the least privacy concerned browser, supports that. How is its third party cookie handling? Um, well, it's bad. Um, that's the third setting. Is restrict? They're going to quote restrict how third party cookies can be used. Well, no one's really even sure what that means right, right. in the first place. But we do know that unfortunately, and maybe this is a as a consequence of their WebKit heritage, they are equally bad as Safari in that they block when you turn on restricting third-party cookies, 
it blocks them coming in but not going out, mm. which means that that you have this problem with, with what's called cross-context leakage, meaning that if you were to go to PayPal and, and click on a link at PayPal, since PayPal loops you through DoubleClick, you, you, your browser visits DoubleClick. It's then in there in a first-party context because it actually pulled up a DoubleClick page through a, a redirect. That allows DoubleClick to put a cookie on your browser in a first-party context. Then it bounces you back to PayPal. Now, wherever else you go, not PayPal, but anywhere that is that is serving DoubleClick ads, because a, a DoubleClick cookie snuck into your browser, slipping through in a first-party context, even though you've said, I want to block third-party cookies, it's sending them out. Now, somebody, a couple of people in the chat room saying, well, Steve, you're being unfair because this is version 1.0. You, you know, don't compare this and, to Firefox. And, and I said, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Well, and, and I'd also point out it's version 1.0, but, but you are competing against version 3.0 of Firefox and version 8 of Internet Explorer. I see. And Google knows nothing about browsers. <laughs> right, right. Google has never seen a browser before. <laughs> exactly. They don't know how they work. They don't they they they've never seen Firefox or Opera or IE or Safari. These are newbies over there at Google who really don't understand the way the web works. Obviously not. So you're and right. That's, they should so have known better. Yes. It's nuts. I mean, it yeah. is nuts, Leo. And and if nothing else, look at the adoption rate, uh, you know, almost you know, what, 1.57, 1.6% people used it. And I and a lot of other people said, ah, OK, well, no, no, thank you. You know, I'm not using something that is that is by default storing the passwords I use for logging on and giving me no ability to protect that storage from somebody who might have access to my browser at any time in the future. Right. I mean, that's crazy. It's just crazy. Also, um, no provision in, in cookie handling for distinguishing between session and permanent cookies. Even IE again, you're able to say, look, I don't mind you. you I, I don't mind session cookies. That is cookies that are persistent only while I'm using the browser, as long as you throw them all away at the end. The, you know, other browsers provide that. No provision for handling sites individually. I mean, I, I truly, I don't get what they what they're thinking what who who they're aiming at this at because ie users who we might say okay are just not going to move away and don't you know they're not clued in to security and privacy so they just stay with ie well they're they're not apt to use some other browser they're not going to move from ie people who do do for a reason because they want these additional features and and you know, Chrome doesn't have any of them. I mean, any of them. It, it just boggles my mind. Oh, yeah. I just and and you know, no scripting management, weak cookie handling. Um, I I, I don't know. I'm just. Well, I mean, obviously. Uh... Oh, 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 and they call that thing at the top the Omnibox. Yeah. I call it Omni Spy. Why is that? It is a real time keystroke logger. So here's the deal on that. Just to explain it, as you as you type in a URL or a search term, it will supply. It goes out to who. By the way, not necessarily to Google. Whoever your search engine of choice is, and gets a kind of prefills it with suggestions. Firefox has been doing this for a while. You you consider that keystroke logging? 
Well, I was I was curious how it worked. So I turned on a packet capture. I fired up Wireshark, turned it on, and then as I typed keys into the OmniSpy box at the top of Chrome, it, it as I began to, it initiated a connection to Google, and every single key I typed in, it sent that keystroke back to Google. And it's like, again... Well, that's how it like, works, right? It's telling... It's sending a key. Firefox is the same thing. It sends a keystroke to Google. Key Google then provides completion in real time from that keystroke or those series of keystrokes. Right. I mean, it's not like you're running a password there. Well, I just wanted to, to people. To and be by the aware. way, you could turn that off. They do yeah, point out uh, you could turn uh, that off. You could turn it off, but right. it's on by default. And maybe it's convenient. Um, many people have said they're a little unnerved by having a single a single box instead of a URL and, and, and a search area separately. I sort of like the yeah, idea from a, me, from yeah. a, from a conserving space. Right. And you know, it's like, okay, I'm not too worried, but again, people need to understand that they're, that what they type in there, even when they're typing in a URL, it's certainly, it's the case that when you go to Google and you enter a search phrase into Google's page, obviously they know what you've entered. This this moves that boundary all the way up to your keyboard when you're when you're typing even a URL you know. Right. So if you if you type in a URL you know that you would like not to you know not to be watched typing. Now you do have the advantage, however, of using the incognito window, which is which is a nice feature of Chrome, where where that feature is not available. And what you do in that window stays in that window. No cookies are written permanently. No caching is, is made permanently. So it's a simple way of doing something. You know, the example they give, um, um, uh, Google gives, is, you know, buying a secret present for someone. And so that your spouse won't, you know, look at your cache of your browser <laughs> if they're apt to do that. And re- or, or, or look, look, look at your history and see, you know, what sites you've been at. So none of that is saved. Um, people out on the net are calling that the porn window um, <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't uh, maintain any right, right. And, and history of what you've done. Right. So that's a nice feature. And that is also a feature in IE eight. So IE eight will have something um, a porn window. Can't remember, yeah, can't remember what they call it. Uh, private browsing, it, private searching, probably something like that. It, it's it's a it, they they've coined a, a nice term for it. But yeah. um, now I have to say, one of the cool things that I like is the notion of dragging tabs between windows for people who are browser centric. And it really sounds like you've got some some people, for example, you were talking about who have yeah. third tabs open in three rows Um, these are browser centric people I know that sometimes I'll have an IE window open and with a bunch of tabs and I'd like to like keep a couple of them the idea of being able to drag them into a different browser instance literally dragging tabs across browser windows and then close the one that no longer that I no longer care about any of the tabs that, that, that are left I think that's a cool feature and Someone's getting it. Is it I either Firefox? Oh, I think it's beta two of Firefox three um, is adding that kind of of cross window tab handling, which will mm. be a nice thing. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the, I, the the thing I like about it more than anything else is I like the we're loading your page little worm, the the little worm turning thing. I I, I dislike. <laughs> 
I don't even remember that. Oh, it's a cute little thing. It, I, I'm annoyed when when the page is still loading. Um, indication is not really clear. Right. And you know, and and I'm I used to like it in the old IE where it was a spinning globe. You could easily right. see that the globe was still spinning, so you could be doing something else, waiting for the page to to get finished. And then in you know in Vista and slash ie7 they made it just that little glint that sort of moves around in a circle well in chrome you got almost it's almost an 180 degree um of a circle sort of like it it looks like a little worm which is like spinning around and it's interesting because it goes backwards slowly when it's when it's looking up the ip of the site until the page begins to load and then it starts running forward again so that's my favorite feature. Other than that, I'm not very. <laughs> well, well, let's summarize both the security and the uh, and the uh, usability flaws of whoa, Chrome whoa, in just whoa. a second. And and they've already had problems, whoa, which whoa. we'll talk about. All right, and the problems problem. people are security, security issues that are coming. Yes, up. already in less than a week. <laughs> but before we do that, I do want to mention our good friends at Audible.com. Audible sponsors this show and does a great job of making it possible for you to listen to audio books, shows, programs. Comedy club appearances, lectures, speeches. If it's if it's in audio form, Audible's got it, and tens of thousands. I think well over fifty thousand books now alone. There's a you know Steve and I are big sci-fi fans. There's a new thing on Audible that I really like. Uh, science fiction author Orson Scott Card is uh, is uh, an Audible stalwart. Of course, many of his books I've recommended uh, on the show, like Ender's Game and so forth. But he also now is very involved with Audible. He's been going into the Audible studios and uh and recording well first of all he picks science fiction stories that he thinks you ought to read they call them arson scott card selects and then he records a commentary on it so for instance the top of the list a great larry niven novel one of his lesser known novels protector and then orson scott card records oh protector is fantastic by the way is that that the name of it yeah protector yeah you know do you know the story do you know it twice oh absolutely it's it's Great story. It's the guy with the big knuckles, right? You, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read it yet. Now I'm going to have to oh, read it. Oh, it's a, it's a fun, it's not a big one. It's not a big heavy duty book, but it's just, it's well, really seven neat. hours I, is big enough. I guess you're used to the Peter Hamilton eight yeah. years in uh, the making uh, book. <laughs> you just subscribe to those. Yeah. <laughs> so this is He's picked one. a bunch of books, uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, just a ton of stuff. So if you're a fan of science fiction and you want to kind of get to know more stuff, Boy, that's a, a recommendation from both Larson Scott Card and Steve Gibson. And then the commentary you can listen to for free uh, on the website. So I'll play a little bit. Uh, I think I can play a Protector little bit. Protector is really good. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I, I'm the I'm having trouble with my, my computer right now. I can't play the audio for you. But go listen. Audible.com is the website. And if you want to join Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You can join up. Uh, try it out for a couple of weeks. Get a book for free. And by the way, if you decide not to stick around, the book is yours to keep. So there's no risk at all. You really get a, a great way to, to find out if Audible is right for you. And and if and one of the issues sometimes people come up with is how do you find you know books to listen to? Uh, you know how do you? How, it's like it, but it's very much like browsing a bookstore. And then they've got this thing like having Orson Cart Scott Card recommend science fiction books. What a great way to go. His recommendation and apparently Steve's too. Protected by Larry Niven. Our pick of the week, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now.
Okay. So there's security on, issues as well now for this. Yeah, thing? yeah. While we're on science fiction, though, yeah. If if listeners are sure they will not read the book, then there is a pack protector entry in Wikipedia. Uh, P A K space protector. Um, you might have fun going and looking at it, but, but don't it don't is, do it if you're going to read the book. <laughs> yes, it is a spoiler. It will completely spoil the book because. Like many of Liv, uh, of Niven's things, well, it's one of the reasons I really like the way Larry writes is there is a – you have no idea what's going on even though you think you do. It is a total surprise, and the revelation of the reality of what's happening is – I mean it's the reason you read the book. So uh-huh. do not do Don't not Google it. anything about Protector if, if you think you might be interested. I recommend the book. It is again. I don't. Rem- I I know. I have. I own the paper. Here, I'll back. read you. I'll read you the uh, this the summary. Spock, <laughs> that's yep. his name. Yep. Spock, the pack had been traveling for most of his thirty-two thousand years. His mission was to save, develop, and protect the group of pack breeders sent out into space some two and a half million years before. Brennan was a belter. Already, I'm confused. The product of a fiercely independent, somewhat anarchic society living in, on, and around an outer asteroid belt. The Belters were rebels, one and all, and Brennan was a smuggler. The Beltworlds had been tracking the pack ship for days, and Brennan figured to meet that ship first. He was never seen again, at least not by those alive at the time. And if that's not enough to get you going. <laughs> and I and again, it is just it is a fun it's again, I I own the paperback. It's not very thick, so I don't think it's a I know it's not a big book, but it's it seven, is it's a seven hour read. That's a it's you know, that's a fairly normal size book. That's not too okay. small. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm putting it on my list right now. I'm just really add, add that to my good Leo. I can't I love Larry Nave. I loved Ringworld. The whole Ringworld saga is just so inspiring and exciting and I'm adding it right now. See, this is okay. so cool. So I've got a credit. I just check it right here. And I had it to my, it's going to download right now. I have it on my iPod for, for walking home tonight. Okay. Second topic on the science fiction front yes. is last night, a new series aired, which was really fun. It's called Fringe. Um, it's I, I J. saw J. a big billboard for it. J.J. Abrams' new series. You know, he's working on the next Star Trek movie that uh, we're going to have that's going to come out next summer. Um, he, of course, is behind Lost. He yeah. was behind Alias with Jennifer Garner and um, and a couple other, you know, successful series. This is very X-Files-like, and I loved it. Um, it is re-airing. The reason I bring it up is it is re-airing on Sunday. It's on Fox. So anyone who missed and think they might enjoy a, a, an X-Files-like sci-fi so, uh, I, I was just very impressed with the show. I thought it was it was tremendous. Fringe. And of course, Fringe is a name. And of course, we have Sarah Connor Chronicles uh, has restarted. Also, its first episode was on, on Tuesday. Cool. The, the second cool. season of uh, of that journey with with Terminator right. uh, mythology. So that was yeah. neat. So okay. let's uh, talk about some of the flaws people have discovered. Well, yes, uh, I I was I was smiling to myself and. Uh, about our listener whose question we read last week when she asked, hey, um, Chrome is new, and I listen to you guys, so I've learned that you can't ever claim anything about security preemptively. How long should I wait before I trust it? And, And I grinned because there were already problems found. I mean, immediately, uh, several bad ones. There was a, a couple, there, there was a way that 
a, a Java JAR file could be downloaded and executed without user's intervention. Uh, bad. Uh, and there were some a buffer overflow found in misformed URLs and and a, a little bit annoyingly, some other problems that they have fixed but refused to document. And that's of a little concern because, uh, you know, it's an it's an open source it's an open source project, and we would uh, you know we would expect them to be to be um, not hiding what it is that they're doing. But um, in this case, they were not they were not being forthcoming with with what things they fixed. I mean, the good news is they fixed them quickly. Chrome does keep a part of itself running all the time, even if you're not using the browser. And every few hours, it phones home to see whether there's anything important has happened. And, now, and we'll it's getting it phishing uh, site information. Yes, it is doing that. Uh, uh, both phishing and malware are coming in on the fly. Malware search strings, not malware itself. Right, yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> That's not the fly that there's, <laughs> Sorry. there's malware yes. being imported here. Yes, um, it, 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 it's acquiring phishing and malware site lists, right. essentially. And so it uses that to protect people, you know, b- b- bringing up a big, wait a minute, this is a known malware site. Are you sure you want to go here? Warning message uh, if if you attempt that. So right. anyway, so so the, the, the takeaway is that it's brand new software. It's going to have problems. I like the architecture. I like the potential of the architecture from a security standpoint. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that browsers are getting bigger. IE8 is going to be big. Um, Chrome is big. And I don't expect to see them shrink. So it's just they're going to be RAM-hungry things that are running applications in themselves rather than applications all running, you know, separately. Right, right. <sighs> and uh, so in summary, uh, Chrome is underfeatured. Uh, it is, uh, its privacy uh, controls leave a lot, much to be desired. Uh, doesn't offer. No, there are none. There are none. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, they just got that somehow. <laughs> Left that out. Well, Amazing. I mean, their business is advertising. I'm maybe not surprised. Well, uh, furthermore, yeah. there are security issues, potential security issues. Um, on the other hand, it's speedy and lightweight. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty much sticking with it as a, a way to run Google's uh, uh, applications. Well, and certainly that is one of their targets. Now, you might argue that add-ons are the way that these missing features could be produced. And certainly it is it is Firefox add-ons, for example, NoScript, which and others with you know really nice ad blocking features and so forth, which are very popular among users. So you could say, okay, well, you know, Google has said that they're going to be they're going to be making an API available for add-ons. Unfortunately they've also explained that add-ons will have the problem or the capability of being able to breach the containment of the window tabs. So mm. to be that they're able to create containment, the add-ons are powerful enough to cross that boundary. So I would argue that it makes much more sense if you really care about security and nothing Google has done so far really de- demonstrates to me they care about security or privacy. If they do, 
give us all the features in the native browser so that we don't need to add potentially insecure right. or security violating add-ons in order to make up for what the what the what the basic browser doesn't have and it's not like they have to you know mess up the ui a lot have an advanced let, you know, line on a menu somewhere with, that most people won't bother going to, but which people like myself and you, Leo, and Firefox users would find everything that they want, you know, hidden in the advanced line of, of a menu option. I mean, it's not hard. It's just missing completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of the, a, a, a um, manifesto to Google to make your browser better. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm unimpressed. I, again, I I don't know who who they're aiming it at because as you said, they 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 borrowed market share from Firefox and right. then they quickly gave a lot of it back. Right. Because Firefox users must have just said, "Wow, I can't do anything with this. I don't yeah, have any I of think tr- uh, 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 last week everybody tried it. <laughs> you know, yep. all the geeks tried it. I, I doubt very many people are using it as their sole browser anymore. Uh certainly not after listening to this. <laughs> and especially since there are many good quality choices that give you uh, much more security. There's, it's not like you need this browser. Well, exactly. I mean, Firefox has a huge market share. It's right. half of the people who come to GRC. It's more than half of the people that go to Twitworld and Leoville and, and, and all of your domains, Leo. I mean, and, and so clearly that's a mature solution, which, which, which also has a, a really, really strong um uh i can't think of the tank security model or uh, uh ecosystem is ecosystem, what I was looking yeah. it's, got, it's got a huge ecosystem and 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 add-on um feature set that lets people you know really make the browser work they want it the way they want it to right so yeah no I, i'm sticking with firefox i'm using it right now and on yep. both mac and windows that's what i use although i have to say i'm happy with ie7 too and i'll, I'll look at ie8 depending on uh what you say. How it comes along. How it comes yep. along. Steve Gibson is the host and major domo of GRC.com, a great site for your security needs for Shields Up, lots of great utilities. Uh, of course, the fantastic Spinrite, the world's best disk maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have for everyone, GRC.com. When you get there, you'll find 16 kilobit versions of this show for quick download if you don't mind a little audio uh, quality loss. You'll also find transcripts, which have absolutely no audio quality, but are much easier to understand sometimes. A lot of people read along while they listen. And uh, Steve's show notes, too. That's all at GRC.com. Next week, a question and answer session. Yes, so I wanted to remind our users, GRC.com slash feedback will take you to a web page where there's no scripting required. Uh, and you're able to uh, send questions and comments and thoughts to me, which I will peruse prior to and while I'm preparing next week's Q&A stuff. Very good. And the week after, we're going to do one of our deep propeller head shows. Oh, I love those. We're going to do DNS SEC, DNS SEC, the languishing but clearly important DNS security um, spec and model and talk about exactly how it is and, and how it works. Um, probably by that time, I will have my DNS work finished. Um, and one of the things it will show you is whether your ISP's DNS servers are supporting right now DNS security. Ah. And lots of other cool things, too. Leo. Very good. Thank you, Steve Gibson. 
We'll catch you on the flip-flop. Take care. Have a great week. Talk to you then. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.